Welcome back to episode 14 of the South London Press Football Pod. We're back once again talking about the managerial pack being shuffled in South London. Rich, I was doing the count before the pods and this is our fourth and fifth managerial switch of the season. We have to talk about our ninth and tenth separate ones in the dugouts we've had to cover. Another busy week. How have you been? I've been good. I feel like whenever we don't do one, it's almost like someone punishes us by then making it even more busy the following week. So I think we both, maybe it's not professional to say this, but I think we both were quite tired at the end of last week and thought, yeah. no, no, we'll, we'll give it a miss. We're not going to be able to give it the full energy that this requires. And then, obviously, then it's almost like because we don't do one, it's someone, the football gods of South London say, right, let's properly mess things up or start making things happen so that you've got, you've got to do one. So here we are, we're back. We've got different managers at, clubs that we cover um, and it just never, never ends. It never ends. No. January transfer window, managers coming and going at three of our main clubs. Um, what a pack. I mean, it's not dull, but I mean, occasionally you wouldn't mind the easy life every now and again, but anyway, yeah. that's where we are. There, there is something in the water in South London. Is this the, from your sort of, previous history with South London football clubs is this the busiest it's ever been or have there been times before where it's been when it's been even more manic no it feels it does feel busier because I think the fact that you've had um the January transfer window which was obviously not hectic for all our clubs but for some and then the way that there's been the manner of the turnaround of appointments is 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 quite interesting I just I just don't think you would normally normally get that kind of thing happened because if you look at if you look at Millwall in particular, and I guess we'll probably we'll start with them, they've kind of been a, a bit of a model of consistency in recent years. If you look at it, Gary Rowett came in in October 2019 and was still in place um, until sort of 2023, you know, early this season. Neil Harris prior to that was appointed March the 10th, 2015, and was in place until he decided to step down in October 2019. Um, and so they've been a team that's kind of, and a club that they've been very stable. This is new in terms of recent history. I mean, in terms of their stability in the championship, it hasn't really been seriously threatened too often. Uh, maybe when Gary first came in and had to, Gary Rowe had to come in and had to first pick him up. But, so this is, they're now in the dogfight and um, that's something new. So when you factor them in, and obviously Palace have been relative, I, I don't know, how would you describe it? Would you say they've been fairly steady in terms of their managerial turnover? Since Roy Hodgson first came to the club, yeah, 100%, because he's he stayed for, what what was it, four years and then Patrick Vieira came in that, you know, a season and a half, that's pretty good in, in Premier League standards. Um, I think he was one of the longest sort of serving managers by the time he left. So it's um, it's been pretty steady. But just this season at, at Palace in particular, it's always felt like there was 
the potential for change on the cards. But I guess that's what happens when you appoint a manager who's 76 and been quite open about the fact that this will be his last season with the football club. Um, but it seems like AFC Wimbledon are the only team who, who we cover religiously who, who have been very stable this season. It's, it's sort of a bizarre turn of events. But I guess that's what happens when you've got teams in the Premier League and the Championship, even League One with the sort of money and factoring it in where they want to get to and, and change happens so quickly. But as you mentioned, we're going to we're going to start with Millwall and, and, and where they are. Obviously been a hectic week, bringing, bringing Neil Harris back, sacking Joe Edwards after 19 games in charge. Um, how did it all play out, Rich, and, and what have you made of the appointment? I think um, Joe Edwards, um, first of all, I just want to say, I mean, you know, I, I guess it's, sometimes it sounds a bit when media talk about what people are like to deal with, but Joe was a pleasure to deal with, seemed a really nice guy, uh, came in with some some big ambitions to kind of help transform the way the team played. But I think the recent results and the, the way that Millwall have been dropping ever, ever deeper into trouble, I think it really did make the Sheffield Wednesday game at the weekend um, a massive, massive game that he probably had to win. And I think from the point that he didn't, I think at that stage you begin to look at what options are out there that that you could bring in. I mean, I, I said it before; it's on previous pods. It's there there to be heard if people don't think I said it, but I did. But Nathan Jones was the guy that I thought felt like a good fit for the club. Um, he obviously isn't available now. I wonder if Millwall could rewind the clock, which nobody can do. I would imagine that maybe, uh, obviously, with the benefit of hindsight, they would have gone down that road. Um, but in terms of Joe, I thought that there were early signs of what he um, what he wanted to do, uh, and, and some of the football and passages and positional play was very good. Um, it felt like it could be something that clicked. But one of the problems I think he had is maybe the squad, technically, um, and the structure of it probably weren't set up to play that way. And I think one of the problems then is that he almost regressed back probably to what the old Millwall were about. And we saw under Gary Rowett, really, that even kind of doing the basics and the stuff that Millwall used to do under Gary Rowett this season hasn't always really worked. Uh, And so I certainly felt in recent press conferences, the kind of underlying message coming from him was almost, if you read the sort of sub-level message that was coming out, it was... I'm trying to change it and I can't. I don't know what to yeah. do. I don't know how to change it. And I think once you get to that scenario, you've then got to look at who you're going to go for. Um, and I'd said to, I think I said to Dan Mark, Dan, Dan Marshall, obviously, he's been on the pod and, and covers the games for us. He said to me this week, he said, um, You'd said about Neil Harris that you thought he'd be back. And I just thought he would be at some stage. Not, I, I'm not saying I knew that he'd be back now, but I just thought that there would always be a point probably where the club, if they were in a bit of a fix, that Neil is someone that knows the club, knows what it means, knows what players need to do to be accepted as a Millwall player. And I I touched on it in the paper um, tomorrow. He has signed, in terms of signings and value for money, I would imagine it'd be difficult to find a manager at Millwall um, in recent history who's been so successful. Jed Wallace, who was terrific, um, uh, eventually obviously sold, but didn't cost a lot of money when he came in. You've got people like Jay Cooper, Sean Hutchison, Ryan Leonard, Tom Bradshaw, George Savile, 
Barbelkovsky, you know, all these players are still, those other players I've listed are all still at the club and mm. some of them have been key, key players. So you cannot dispute that when Neil was at the club last, even if maybe he ran out of impetus and the team ran out of impetus a little bit when he felt it was time to step down, he, he did a really good job last time round. So I think it's a, I think it's an interesting one. He's got a hell of a start at Southampton away. Yeah. You mentioned about Edwards' sort of quotes that filter through in the media and you sort of read in between the lines a little bit. Do you think that's maybe what the Millwall hierarchy saw a little bit and maybe that's why they've decided to act? I know the run of form hasn't been great. And then when you look at Saturday, a really sort of disastrous loss against the Sheffield Wednesday side who have clawed them straight back in. Was that the sort of straw that broke the camel's back a little bit? Yeah, I think I think the problem was that the performances in recent weeks have dropped away. I mean, I mean, the thing I would say with that is we haven't done a pod since it. Ipswich, the first 15, 20 minutes, um, Millwall started well. They had, you know, corners, they had set pieces, they forced Ipswich into making fouls and giving away those dead ball situations. And then what happened was Amari Hutchison goes down injured. And I would say that's probably a tactical thing that to Ipswich did. I think I tweeted about it at the time. Uh, Kieran McKenna gets his players over, has a chat with them, probably sorts a few things out. And from that point onwards, Ipswich are on top. And as soon as they score, it's a matter of, it's a question of how many goals they, they get. Um, and I think on Saturday, Sheffield Wednesday had seen what Ipswich had done and they did the same tactic. They had Pervader go down injured all the players come over because Millwall had started well, not as well as the Ipswich game, but they'd started the first 15 minutes well. But then after that, Sheffield Wednesday began to get a bit more of a grip. You know, the goals they concede are not good goals to concede. They're very, very un-Millwall-like when Millwall are good defensively. And I think from that point on, second half, they there was no fault in the effort from the players because they kept going. Like There was negativity in the first half. The players were booed off. There were boos when they came back on from some of the fans. But in the second half, I mean, some fans had gone, I think, well before the end. But I would say that no one really got on the players' backs in the second half because they could see they were trying, but they just couldn't find a way to get anything back into the game. I mean, yeah. in terms of in terms of points from losing positions, I think I haven't got the stat in front of me, but I think it's twenty four points they've 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 lost from losing positions. Millwall, you've got to be mentally tougher. So going back to your original question, I don't think that it was just what Joe said in post-match in isolation. I just don't think you can look at that form and think and see at the moment that it was massively going to change. I mean, in the form guide, uh, Millwall for the last six are rock bottom, one point from their last six matches. Um, and the, the big problem as well, Ed, is like if they go down financially, the difference in the kind of money you receive from being in the championship to league one you're losing millions of pounds and, and and you've got players that are on contracts that you might not be able to shift them off of i don't i'm not i, I haven't asked the question yet but i don't know if there are relegation release clauses or things that reflect if the team loses status that the salary comes down so but we're not there yet i'm not saying we are but you know there i think once you've got that real risk of losing that position in the in the championship if the option is to maybe change the man in charge and get that short-term kick you need to get away. Then that's that's what well, that's what nearly every single club does in the country. 
Yeah. You're talking about the sort of differences between dropping down from the Championship to League One. Just thinking about it, I see Millwall on, on Sky every every other week at the moment. Um, I can't remember seeing Charlton on Sky Live this season. Maybe once at the start, was that against Derby or was that last season I'm thinking about? Yeah, the, the, it doesn't happen very often. They the, the League One games tend to be on, I think, when the Championship are off on a, like an international right. break and they'll, they'll, they'll kind of do it then. Um, the other thing that, I, and I'm not saying this in a way that I'm saying, oh, this means it's all doom and gloom, but I was saying to you before we started recording, obviously Charlton and Millwall are both in relegation trouble. And it's interesting that I was saying, to, I said to you, I wondered how many clubs had had more than, it would be interesting to know how many clubs who've had uh, multiple managers like in a season the way that Charlton and Millwall have, how many of them have actually stayed up? Because I was yeah. thinking instantly of Fulham, obviously my club, and we had Martin Yarl in the 2013-14 season, and, and and we went down that year. We basically had Yarl, then we had Rene Mullenstein for about two and a bit months. He got sacked, and then what we did was we went even more um, sort of anarchy mode. We went for Felix Magat, who destroyed things, and we went down, and very nearly the following season, we nearly went down again. Uh, but we just about stayed up. Um, and that was, again, after more managerial changes. Um, and obviously, I was saying to you as well that obviously Southampton last season, they had uh, started the season with Ralph Hasenhutl. They then went to Nathan Jones. And then very quickly, as you said who it was, they, they made another change, didn't they, to Ruben, Ruben Sellers? Sellers, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and so they got relegated as well. So I'm not saying, but it's interesting that both Charlton and Millwall, unfortunately, have both uh, done the same. You know, you've got Gary Rowett, uh, then you've got Joe Edwards, Neil Harris, and with with Charlton, you've got the same situation that you start the season with Dean Holden, Michael Appleton, and now Nathan Jones. But yeah, I can't think of, I can't think of clubs. I mean, I, I don't know how many the most Palace have had in the season. Off the top of your head, I'm testing you here. What's the most you've had? Do you think? I've been thinking while you've been talking about the Premier League reign and permanent managers, I'm I'm pretty sure it's only two. Um, when Neil Warnock came in, he was replaced by Alan Pardew. Uh, obviously, Tony Pulis left at the start of the... Uh, well, Tony Pulis didn't really take a game in no. that Premier League. He did he take a single game in that season. year. left on the eve, yeah. yeah. So I don't know whether you can count that one, but that was three in the space of a season, but although he didn't take a game. Um, no, Palace has mainly just been two. I'm trying to think even back to the championship days when Simon Jordan was was chairman. Um, no, I yeah. can't, can't think of three permanent managers. Obviously, Keith Millen did loads of caretaker spells, didn't he? But he was yeah. already part of the coaching staff and usually stayed on. So it's very rare. And I'm even thinking about it. Has there been a club who have done four? It's one that we'd obviously have to Google. I'm not sure we could do off the top of yeah. our heads, but it's, bit, it's just... I'm not sure that constant amount of change is, is good for any football club. And when you've seen what Millwall have done here, going back to Harris, a bit like what Palace did last season, reverting back to Roy Hodgson, who knew a number of the players, managed to get a tune out of them straight away with Harris, who obviously knows a lot of the players already in the Millwall squad. It, it can't be the worst thing in the world, can it? No. I'll tell you another team thinking about it that obviously have gone through them like crazy is Watford. I don't know how many Watford yeah. might have had. Just off the top of my head, I suddenly thought... They probably have cycled through. And weirdly, at certain stages for them, it didn't really have any effect on them. And I think no. I think change isn't always bad. I think someone's mixing it up fairly regularly. And I don't necessarily think that anyone at Millwall thought that when Gary Rowett left, bearing in mind you've had two very long-serving managers and Neil Harrison and Gary at the club, 
I don't think anyone at Millwall thought that there wouldn't be more of a cycle, a bit more of an aggressive cycle, but I don't think people thought he would be as quick as this. Um, yeah. So the difficulty with, with I would say is that we've, if people said to me, what was Joe Edwards' vision for how he wanted to play or what was his principles? I think the biggest problem was because he couldn't get the results, we never really got to see exactly how it would have looked. Um, and there were, there are games, there always are those games that you look at and you think, what if what if that had happened? You know, like they're going to Southampton on Saturday and I was at the game at the Den um, earlier in the season between the two clubs and Wes Harding's header hits the crossbar and then Ryan Fraser scores in the third minute of stoppage time. Now that could have been three points. It could have been a point, but in stoppage time they concede. Uh, you know, there's the game against Huddersfield where George Savile's penalised for the handball. I think there's the... Sunderland game where Ryan Leonard, I mean, plenty of Millwall fans will say it wasn't a foul by Lenny in the box that gave Sunderland a goal. Again, a really big goal that was decisive in terms of the points outcome. There were those little moments. I think if he got another result or two, I think Millwall would have given Joe longer to sort of get to where he wanted to get to. He probably needed to get to a summer to really kind of move it on because there wasn't a lot of the deals in January, I say a lot of the deals, there wasn't a lot of deals in January but because Millwall had done a lot of their budget, I think, in the summer. You know, there wasn't there wasn't that scope to do more. And again, if you could if you could map things out perfectly, maybe Gary Rowett goes at the end of last season, Joe has a pre-season and a transfer window to get things where he wants to get them. And then he's got a bit more of a squad in his vision. But yeah. That's not the way football works. And I guess part of the skill of being a manager is you've got to kind of work with what you've got and manage to get the results you need to give yourself that time to to get to get the team eventually where you want it to be. Talking about getting results from the squad that he's got, how do you expect Neil Harris to, to try and get a tune out of this Millwall squad with the players at his disposal? Yeah, I was thinking about that. One of the things I was wondering about, um, people are probably saying now that when he's been at other clubs, he's played wing-backs all the time. But when, um, obviously, Joe stuck largely with the wing-backs, uh, um, which I don't think were particularly... I don't think the five five at the back was particularly something that Millwall fans enjoyed under Gary Rowett um, for a lot, you know, particularly towards the end. I mean, Neil, when he was at Millwall last time, he did play wing-backs at times, but I'd say quite often he liked to play a back four. Um, he hasn't got a, a, a target man... Um, I think Matt Smith was, was laughing because there was some kind of video going around of uh, making out, you've got the call, you need to get back down here. And there was a clip of some guy sort of dancing or something to some music. And Matt Smith said he'd had loads of people send it to him and he found it really amusing. But they probably haven't, Kevin Nisbet's obviously out injured. I'm, he's not a target man in the classic, classic role. Um there's not a lot of height up there up top. You know, you've got Tom Bradshaw, who's a really, really good runner, energetic. But it's going to be interesting to see how Neil kind of does pull it together because he was saying that, um, I spoke to him this week for the paper, and he said, like, I've, I'm the same man, but I'm a different manager. I'm a different head coach. And he said, some of the players, I know them, but they will be different players to the players that I left you know, when he, when he was last at the football club. So um, I think it's going to be interesting to see how he gets, you know, pulls them together. And it's such a tricky first game in charge. I'm sure it's one that if you could do, if I was a manager, I'd be saying, can I take the first one where I sit up in the stands and watch it 
yeah. watch it on there. But that's not really a possibility when you've only got 13 games to go. You've got to come in and try and get something. I mean, Southampton, before they lost the hole the other night, their home form is ridiculous. Uh, it's absolutely, yeah. you know, they're so strong at home. But they've had a couple of wobbles lately. Maybe maybe, maybe it's set up for, for an, it, it would be an upset. I mean, no, I mean, the spending power of people like Leicester, Leeds and Southampton it makes them such difficult, difficult games. We obviously had this conversation the other day, well, the other day, yesterday, about uh, this is just pure speculation, whether he'd go into the free transfer market and maybe try and bring in a sort of target man. I, I was having a look here just while you were talking. The one that sort of sticks out to me is Cotter Wickham, but he yeah. hasn't obviously he hasn't played all season. Uh, I can't remember the last time he played. I think he was at Forest Green in League One last season. So it's obviously been a while for him since since he touched the grass. But it's, maybe that was the sort of striker that Harris could potentially go for, but that's just pure speculation. There's nothing in that whatsoever. No, Um I think it's probably unlikely, I think, for a few different reasons. I think Conor Wickham's injury record, as we know from when he was at Palace, is 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 not the best. And I think if you're looking to get a player fit and then sort of get him in the team, um, it's going to be fairly difficult. The risk factor is going to be high, but they're going to pick up an injury. Millwall have already got players that haven't, in Jaffet Tanganga and Michael Obafemi, who they've been trying to build up. So... Um, I think that's going to be a tricky one for them to do. I mean, Obafemi should be back in the squad this weekend. Uh, I did catch up with Joe Edwards earlier in the week and he said that he was back from his illness. So that means Neil Harris is going to have him available. Um, and then there's the option that Brooke Norton Cuffey and Ida Marku can probably play more minutes because they they were limited in what they could do last, last weekend. So he, he's got a few players coming back into the fold uh, or players that can play more minutes. Um, it's whether you go there. I, I don't know what, what's the best tactic. Do you think going to Southampton, Ed? You, if you park the bus, you're probably going to get opened up, aren't you? But they're, they're obviously not going to want to press too high, Millwall, because as soon as you press, you leave the gaps in behind. Yeah, I'm really not sure. I, I don't know whether you just go for them and say it's a free hit because. You know, first game in the job, sort of getting to know the players. Some of the new players, obviously, you know, there's a lot of them already, or whether you just flood the midfield and try and stop them passing through you. They're obviously, with Russell Martin, you said at the start of the season, you expect them to go straight up just because of the style of football that he plays and they've taken to the championship like a duck to water with them. So uh, yeah. it's going to be a really tough, really, really tough test for him. It's, as you said, I'd probably be sitting it in the stands and thinking that's the, the best route to go down. The other thing that could be a factor eventually, of course, is goal difference. I mean, we don't see it decided too often on that, but it's quite tight down there. You know, like QPR on 32, Millwall 33, Huddersfield 34, Stoke 35. You can go above that. But if you look at the goal differences, Stoke minus 16, so are Huddersfield, Millwall minus 15 and QPR minus 14. So when we talk about some of these games that are left, the goal difference could be a factor in it because it is, mm. it is quite tight. And that can also affect teams if they're chasing. If, you know, how many times have you seen it where a team might be three points behind, but they know they need like an eight or nine goal swing and effectively it's game over. But the interesting thing is after this, they've got, um, I think I'm right in saying, obviously 12 matches to go. Uh, Millwall have got six at home, six away. Now, the Dem form has been absolutely awful this season. Neil Harris, certainly one of the things that he did last time when he succeeded Ian Holloway, 
he sorted the home form out. He made them he made them horrible to play against, and he and he got good results at the Den. And it's also worth pointing out that when he last took over, it was a much you know they got relegated from the championship, but he took over in March. And at that time, when Ian Holloway was sacked, they were eight points adrift of safety. So yeah. he's had he's had this this scenario being out of the bottom three at the moment as we speak is a positive that he's you know they're in control of their destiny basically. You spoke to Harris yesterday about his return for the back page. What what did he have to say? It just come across that he loved Millwall, and I think uh, he's. I think as well, the thing that's that's interesting, he's brought David Livermore back, who obviously he's worked with before Adam Barrett, he brought to the club. Uh, so he's part of the coaching staff already. I think the key thing that come across from, from, from him is just that he gets what Millwall fans want, I think. There was a quote he gave me, Millwall DNA is in my blood, he said to me. So, uh, uh, and, he, and he talked about the fact that um, he wants them to play. He, he, he said, I don't just need to coach them how I want them to play. It's what's expected from a Millwall player to be loved by the fan base and have longevity. And a lot of the players he signed have had a longevity uh, at the den. So I think he realises talk is cheap. He did He did say as well that he said, I'm not going to make any promises about what we do in the short, in the next two months or the next 15 months. He said he wants to build. The key is that he wants to build and he said, I want to leave the club in a better position than what it is at the moment. So we will see. I think I think everyone realises, uh, as well as those, I know you're probably going to ask, spoke to Zian Fleming and also uh, George Saville. And the kind of message coming across, I think the players realise that there's only so much talking you can do and that it's, it's time for action. But, I mean, Zian uh, has been in this situation with Fortuna Sittard. He actually... Uh, scored the winning goal to keep them up and he also cleared off his own goal line in stoppage time in that match uh, so he was like a double hero the last game before he left to join Millwall and he said I absolutely do not want to be having to do that job again of, of kind of keeping them up um, and the one thing that comes across when you speak to Zian is that they care you know people I think people say oh, these players don't care they're not mate they're not trying it's it's not that and, and even George Sabbath, who's one of the guys who's kind of been here, seen it, done it at Millwall. Um, he, I asked him about Southampton and um, I sort of said, like, this was before Southampton had lost in midweek. I said, it's, so, you know, what, how do you approach it? And his words to me were this, it's in the paper. He said, my message this week will be, if you don't think we're going to get anything from the game, then you might as well stay at home. The attitude has got to be that we can go there and get something out of the game. So... It's all good. I mean, they're saying all the right things. Obviously, now they've got to implement it. I'm Jake Cooper, and you're listening to the South London Press Football Podcast. Welcome back to part two of the South London Press Football Pod, and it's time to talk about Crystal Palace. As we said, it's been a, a busy um, old week for managerial change, and I guess this uh, the the departure of Roy Hodgson and the appointment of Oliver Glasner. It's kind of it's been something that no one's really sat there that knows anything about Palace being particularly shocked at this, are they? Yeah, this is Roy's departure has been on the cards for quite some period of time. Yeah, it, it has been. Um, I think if you go back to the two 0 defeat at at, Bourm at home to Bournemouth um, before 
before the turn of the new year. I felt like that's when it really changed, sort of the fan atmosphere, someone throwing a bottle or a hand warmer, whatever it was at Hodgson as he walked down the tunnel after the 2-0 defeat, fans booing the team off. It's felt like then he's been unable to to win part of the fan base back over and it's been a sort of slowly steady decline for Crystal Palace from the the 5-0 defeat at Arsenal where fans were holding up banners and and protests. Um, the 4-1 defeat at Brighton, Michael Elise pinging his hamstring, Eberich Eze going down injured after the 3-2 win at home to, to Sheffield United as well. It's just been a, a culmination of things which throughout the course of the season has has led to a really sort of undignified exit for Roy Hodgson. Um, you know, what will probably be his last managerial spell. I don't think he's ruling out the the chance of going back into football, but certainly with Palace, his, his chapter is over, it's done. Um, 200 games he got to, some highlights which were fantastic in the Premier League time, but this season overall has just been set up for failure, really. The the ability, the, un- the inability to replace Wilfred Zaha, um, bringing in the likes of Matthias Ranch, who's obviously not quite ready. I think you saw from his first Premier League start against Chelsea, extremely raw. Um, there are some some real talent in the squad, the likes of Eze and Elise, but Hodgson's been unable to use them, and I think they found it really difficult to to get goals from the team, to to find a tune of playing without those two. Uh, you only have to look at Palace's last two wins. The 3-1 win against Brentford and the 3-2 win against Sheffield United. Those six goals both were scored, all were scored by Eze and Elise. So it's been a it's been a really tough few months for Palace, um, for the hierarchy as well. Uh, I know Oliver Glasner did his first interview with the club yesterday and it was obviously published this morning and he's talking about that there were sort of plans in place for him to come in over the, the summer, but that's been accelerated. Um, I think that's probably slightly sort of maybe bending of the truth a little bit. I think Palace, particularly of some sort of the hierarchy, maybe wanted to keep Hodgson until the end of the season, but Glasner has been pushed forward by John Texter, the, the largest majority shareholder of the football club. He obviously wanted to point him, point him for Leon uh, during the summer, didn't quite get there. Now he's got him at Palace and he's got a really big game coming up for his first game in charge. They host Burnley, um, who are almost sort of dead to rights in terms of where they are on the table there them and Sheffield United that the two you're looking at to go down and then it's a fight between Luton Palace uh, and Nottingham Forest and Everton for that final spot um, he's going to be without Eze and Elise Elise obviously long term Eze not a million miles away but maybe just not risk for this one um, but it's exciting at the same time Glasner's obviously really highly rated done very very well in Germany taking Wolfsburg and Eintracht Frankfurt to Champions League football winning the Europa League at Eintracht Frankfurt, so I'm sure there's sections of the Palace fan base already booking their time off from work next season uh, for the following season for for their trip around the continent. But it, it's it's a massive risk at the same time because you're appointing someone with no Premier League experience, and Palace are in a dogfight and haven't got many tools to get out of it. So it's a strange one. It's obviously on one hand the football club it looks like it's going to start going places again after a, a season where. As I mentioned at the start, when you reappoint a 76-year-old who who isn't going to stay around for much longer, it's very much short-term planning. But now there feels like there is a plan for the future in place. It's just whether Palace can get over the line in these final few games of the season, retain their Premier League status and, and go again in the summer. Obviously, they're going to lose, I think, a few of their real assets uh, this summer. The likes of Mark Gahey, 
Michael Elise, Eberich, Yeze, even Joachim Addison's entering the final sort of year or so of his contracts, I think. So it's going to be a big rebuild. Oliver Glasner's going to have the chance to spend money and, and implement what he wants to do in the squad. It's just whether Palace can, can get it over the line now. And obviously, uh, this week's paper, I say obviously, no one knows this, but we've got obviously the latest Adam Sells column. Um, and he does tend to get a bit of a stick sometimes for his vigorous defences of, of Roy Hodgson in the past. And uh, I was jesting with him this week about needing an explosive squad to handle his, his column when it came over to me. Uh, it's in the paper today. People can read it. It's very extensive. He's put a lot of work into it. Uh and the thing I always admire about Adam is that uh, he is not going to—he's not going to change his mood or change his mindset just to please people. And I think some of the stick he's, he's had on social media is is just—is ridiculous. Because if you don't agree with someone, you don't necessarily need to make it quite personal at times. But his his piece is in the paper. Uh, his headline that he had for it was unfathomable, undignified, unlucky, unfair. So that's his kind of summary of the situation with Roy Hodgson. Um, I don't know. I don't know whether we ever did see. Do, do we ever feel that Roy had enough of the tools or enough sort of resource behind him to maybe see exactly what he could have done with the football club? I don't know over his over his, both his spells at, at the club. I don't know. I don't think so. No, I don't think he was dealt a fair hand um, at all, really. If you look at the the first stint uh, before he, before he left for the first time round, um, in that first season when he had Johan Kapai and Ruben, Ruben Loftus-Cheek and Wilfred Zaha, I think that's probably some of the best football I've seen at Crystal Palace. They then took the route because of the high wages they were on, the likes of Patrick Van Aanholt, Gary Cahill, Scott Dan, those who, Andros Townsend, those who left when Roy Hodgson left the football club. They chose the route of sort of running these big wages down and rebuilding with a new manager who was going to take the club forward, which they did with Patrick Vieira. They did that very well. Mark Gahey came in, Michael Elise, as they had been there for a season. Conor Gallagher came in on loan. It was a really good squad. Wilfred Zaha was finding some of his his best form. Um, and then when Roy came back again... Uh, got the best out of Eze and Elise. They were playing some wonderful football again for those final 10 games and that was without Wilfred Zaha. And then you go into this season, you lose Wilf, fail to replace the club's greatest ever player. Michael Elise and Eze get injured every other week at the moment. Shek Decore gets ruled out for the season. Eze, Elise, Decore and Mark Gahey, Palace's four best players, have all been injured at points during the season and they've all only been on the field uh, once this season and that was the game against Luton so that just tells you how difficult it's been for Roy Hodgson to to really get a tune I think Roy and Ray would both Ray Lewington that is who's also left the football club I think they'd probably both admit that they find it difficult to to try and get a tune out of this squad so it's going to be really interesting to see if Oliver Glasner can, can come in and, and do that I think he's presented although I don't think there'll be much change from the team against Everton on, on Monday night that picked up a point obviously implemented his style of play a little bit in that, although it was very much Roy Hodgson's team. I don't think Glasner had any uh, impact on that, although Sky would like to beg to differ. Um, I think I think it's going to be really interesting to see what, what he can do this Saturday against Burnley because it's a, it's a must-win for Crystal Palace. Yeah, I was looking at it and I've said a quick look now. And when you look at the remaining games, you're five points off the bottom three. I think you'll be fine. But uh, I just think that some of the players coming back, even like Eze coming back, I just think you've got enough in the squad. As we say, we're looking at probably one relegation. You'd think one position that needs to be filled. 
If you look at your remaining games and um, the two, obviously you've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven home games left. But the next two look massive to me at home. Burnley and Luton. You've then got Newcastle, Man City, West Ham, Man U, Villa. So, I mean, if you win those next two home games, you're you're not a million miles away from being pretty much maybe out of it, are you really? So they are they are massive. And then you look at the away games, uh, Tottenham, Forest, Bournemouth, Liverpool, Fulham, Wolves. Again, there's matches where you can pick points up. But I think those next two home ones, if you if you can get the right results, that's a massive leap towards safety, isn't it? Yeah, I mean the hierarchy see thirty-eight points as the as the magical cutoff to secure your Premier League survival. I think it's pretty remarkable, really, that Palace do have the number of points that they have already. They've obviously been desperately bad in in some games this season. Arsenal and Brighton immediately stick out um, games even before the turn of the year, where you're thinking this is going to be a real slog. You know, the fact that they picked up points against Forest and Fulham earlier in the season, both at home. And the squad was just really paper thin. I mean, I think there were five academy graduates on the bench for that Forest game. So it just tells you how how difficult it really was. I think what was interesting about the Glasner appointment was that he told Palace, this is how I plan to get points from this squad without Eze and Elise in the short term. I think that's what really sold them. Um, I know that people have sort of been saying today on social media, oh, interesting that journalists sort of make up all this, this nonsense that Palace were after McKenna and Cooper and Lopetegui and stuff like that. But... Yeah, you know, although Oliver Glasner said in his in his interview that it looks like it was a sort of one that was going to be happening in the summer, Palace were looking at other candidates. So yeah. it was it it wasn't. You know, although Hodgson was in charge, I think there was always this acceptance that if someone came along and really wowed them and thought that they could really get the best out of this squad, they accelerated the plans, and and that's what happened this time around. I think it was unfortunate in that obviously I got to the press conference last Thursday, and then there was all this. It got cancelled immediately and the immediate thing you spring to mind as we reported the day before the Hodgson's tenure was set to get cut short and Oliver Glasner was a strong contender for the job your immediate reaction is to think well he's obviously going to get sacked but Hodgson did collapse um, looks like he's making a, a full recovery which is obviously the, the best news that, that they could have been so um, wishing him the best as well a remarkable man and when you're in his company sort of hearing his stories about football it, I'm going to miss them because he was um yeah, it was a real pleasure to sort of work with in terms of that press conference sort of communication. But there's a new man at the helm, um, very highly rated, got lots of ideas. Looks like he's fallen out with a couple of sporting directors as well in his in his previous uh, previous stints as management. Obviously, that's his background he's come from. So I think it's going to be a really interesting summer for Crystal Palace. And uh, as you're talking about the these two games at home, Luton and Burnley, are, are the massive ones to. If you get wins in both of them, you will almost guarantee your survival. Because although Luton are putting up a fight, I'm not sure whether they've got the the wherewithal to, to quite make it. They're going to give it a really good go and a much better go than everyone's thought about. But I don't I don't know whether they're going to quite be able to do it. No, and I mean going back to the Glasner thing and the fact that people are saying, well, we never, you know, Palace were never in for these other managers. Of course, if Palace are talking to Glasner, they're not going to be saying to him, well, at the moment we're trying to get uh, Lopetegui, McKenna, Cooper. Uh, but you are in our thoughts. So, like, mm. I, I'm sure they would say we, we want to do something in the summer. And then, when the, I mean, I think it's, there's no disputing from our side of things and what we've heard that those other managers we've mentioned were all people that they were keen on, but for diff- whatever mm. reason, they did not feel it was right for them. So, yeah, it's going to be fascinating. I think we're going to jump into a bit of uh, a catch-up you had 
uh, with Kevin Hatchard, an old colleague of mine at Club Call, who is a, a European football expert. Brilliant. He was brilliant at Club Call. He's, he just got better and better with it. I mean, he was always excellent, but does a lot of stuff on Sky, talk sport, uh, German match commentary. So, yeah, I don't want to do him a disservice, but he is he, he is a top operator. And you asked him about Oliver Glasner and got more detail on him. So I think we'll jump into that now. Yeah, I think it's very exciting. Um, if you look at Glasner's records, it's pretty much been success upon success. Mm. Um, when he was in Austria, Lask, he took them into the top flight, then took them into Europe. So that was hugely successful went to Wolfsburg and it was a group that was talented and Wolfsburg pay, you know, decent wages, but there was no indication that they were going to be able to qualify for the Champions League, but he managed to get them into the top four, which was a really big achievement. They did it playing, you know, very organised, very defensively strong football. And then he went to Frankfurt and managed to win the Europa League and not only won the Europa League but in his final season managed to get them into the final of the DFB Pokal so uh, yeah he's been very very successful um, he's a very smart guy very smart coach does really good work without the ball sets his teams up very cleverly uh, wants to play attacking football when possible mm but he wants his teams to be organised and he wants them to be physical and intense. They will have is a coach who's very, very smart and incredibly driven, incredibly committed, intense and demanding. And that has its impact as well in the sense that if you look at his, his departure from Wolfsburg, he had publicly criticised the transfer policy at times. He had fallen out, therefore, with the sports CEO, Jörg Schmadke, mm -hmm. who's only recently left Liverpool. Um, and if you look at his time at Frankfurt, it was the same. And I think the feeling was that when he parted company with Frankfurt, that had been coming for a while. It was, it was painted as a run of disappointing league results. But I think the truth was he'd maybe trodden on toes once too many. Um, in terms of his public demeanour and what he'd said about um, the squad and transfers and what have you. So, you know, he's a guy that doesn't mess around. He's very straightforward, charming, but very direct in some ways. And I think, you know, Palace fans should be enthused by that because he's somebody who really cares. Welcome back to part three of the South London Press Football Pods. We're going to move on to Charleston Athletic, a good point on the road against promotion-chasing Bolton last time out. The first point of Nathan Jones is tenure. A little bit more of a tricky task tomorrow when they uh, host Portsmouth. Rich, you're on Nathan Jones's press conference today. What did he have to say about the upcoming clash? Yeah, well, the first thing I want to say about that is there was it was a Zoom, so the video was on, and uh, it was my lad's birthday the other day, and he was 16, and his mum thought it'd be a good idea to get him a helium-filled football balloon. And... Um, so, for some reason, unbeknown to me, I don't know why, he's put the balloon in my room, like, yesterday. And I realised, after being on the whole Zoom, pretty much, that this helium balloon was floating around behind me. And I'm just, I, I don't know if anyone had noticed at Charlton, but it was obviously a bit odd that I'm a grown man. I've got, like, a helium football. Um, but that obviously has no bearing on anything that Nathan Jones had to say. Um, 
he was uh yeah he was in good spirits um he uh i mean the game this weekend is a is obviously a difficult one um i would i would have been going to charlton this weekend i mean in any normal week charlton in the position they are in the table portsmouth top of the table it's a big game i would i would have been there but the fact that neil harris has now uh, been appointed head coach in millwall means i've had to change my plans for this week uh, so, but I was looking forward to the game as well because, you know, there's been, I think, in the Bolton game, from what I can sort of glean from it, I wasn't at that game, obviously, um, and the match before that, the kind of energy that Nathan Jones and the kind of tempo he wants, I think there were signs of it. Uh, scoring three goals away from home and not winning at Bolton is is probably indicative, again, of the defensive issues the sides had this season. But... I think they've got a chance against Portsmouth because their record against them, they've, they've been a bit of a bogey team for Portsmouth for a number of years now. And um, so I, I think it's set up potentially for them to, to give it a right good go on Saturday. So I would have liked to have been there to see it. But um, yeah, I think the only injury news that came out of it came Ramsey. Um, Nathan Jones won't put an exact time scale on it, but says he has a hamstring tendon issue. Uh, he said he doesn't like to put time scales on it, but he said it will keep him out for the foreseeable future, sort of our next three to four games. So I don't know. Initially, we'd, I think, heard that it could be four to six weeks. Um, so, you know, that doesn't quite translate to three or four games, but he has missed. He has now been out for a bit already. So, uh, and apart from that, I think they've got quite a few of their injuries beginning to clear up. Obviously still missing Miles Lieburn. But one thing I thought he said that was interesting, we're going to hear uh, in a little bit, we're going to hear some of my questions to him from the press conference that today, well, Thursday, but obviously coming out Friday. Uh, but one of the things he said quite early on was that it was a big squad and that he'd be looking to cut it down in the coming months and moving forward. Um, so on the actual audio you'll hear in a bit, I asked him what his optimal kind of squad size was. Uh, I don't think it's any surprise to hear people say that Charlton have got too many players. Um, Stuart Stuart Court, who's very, very good on the sort of history side of it and, and stuff like that. I mean, I, I might be able to quickly find it, but he'd um, he put out the other day how many players Charlton had used this season and it's it's loads. It's absolutely loads. Yeah. Not, that's not very specific, I know, but it, it, it kind of underlines the fact that there's not been continuity in the squad. So... Looks like you only, you only have to look at what Nathan Asimwe was, was was part of the the first team squad at the start of the season, wasn't he? And now he's I guess he's nowhere to be seen. I, I wonder if he's one that the club. How old is he? Eighteen, nineteen, something along those lines. So yeah. I wonder if the club could look to get him out on loan to a, a national league team before the uh, before the window closes. I think their their window closes in March. I mean, we we'd heard that there was the possibility of him going out on loan towards the end of the January transfer window. It didn't materialise for one reason or another but um, I wonder if that's one they're looking at trying sort of just for this last part of the season to get him a bit of football Yeah they might do and I think um, you know we, the, the same feeling was that Croy Anderson might go out well of course Croy's now come back into the team and he's mm. playing uh, and obviously Nathan Jones as well has also brought Daniel Carnu in I mean it's interesting that at Bolton the other day um they Alfie May, who's got 20 goals but hasn't been in great form, hasn't been in scoring form of late too much. Um, he was on the bench and came on, 
So Nathan Jones is not averse to using those young players. So maybe a sim has got a chance of, of coming back in. But I agree, if if he's not, is whether, I guess, is whether Charlton see a National League loan as a good enough thing to develop in rather than maybe staying around the first team squad and, and getting experience. Going back to what I was saying before, I've now got the numbers in front of me. 46 players used in all competitions so far this season for Charlton. 40 in league games only. And 24 players have made debuts for Charlton this season. 21 of those in the league. That's CAFC Facts and Stats. Stuart Court on Twitter is, is well worth a follow. I mean, plenty of Charlton fans follow him already. But if you don't, uh, credit to him for that stat. But, um, yeah, it's. I think uh, it's going to be interesting to see what they do in terms of... Because saying about cutting the squad, sometimes when these players come in on what's relatively good money at the level, because Charlton, you know, are one of the clubs that will probably pay some of the best kind of financial terms in the league, it's kind of quite hard to move those players on. And we saw that with Scott Fraser when he went back up to Scotland. The deal wasn't done quickly because it wasn't like they were meeting all of his salary. So cutting the squad might be what you want to do. It's how simple it is moving forward. Yeah. Has Lewis Fiorini made a first competitive start yet for Joe? Is, is, is he, I mean, he was with the under-21s, wasn't he, the other day? Yeah, I think I think as well that he was obviously a player that Michael Appleton knew well. And so I think, uh, funnily enough, he, the interview I did with him not that long ago, he said about the fact that he'd been unlucky with managers going and they're not really featuring too much and that could happen again this time. Hmm. You mentioned um, Daniel Carney, scored last weekend, got exclusive interview with him in, in this week's paper. What did he have to, to tell you? It's been a good time for Dan because, uh, and that's what the, that's kind of the thrust of the piece actually, that although Charlton haven't had a great season, he has, you know, he's scored four goals on loan at South End in one game. Um, he's been away with Sierra Leone. And he played against Egypt and he played against Mohamed Salah. So, uh, and he spoke to Salah in the game. So that's kind of, or, or he, was, he spoke to him at the match. Um, and he's now back in the team at, at Charlton. So he's having a really good season and he's just signed a new long-term contract. So, um, yeah, I, I, reading between what I've heard and, and also people like Louis Mendes, who does stuff for us, uh, it sounded like Dan Khan, who had a really, really good game up at Bolton. Um, and he's he's a willing runner. He's athletically good. Uh, I think he's proven all the way through at every single level. He's a prolific goal scorer, and um, you know I think it, it goes to show that if you've got the right ingredients, you're getting Nathan Jones's team. So yeah, he's he he kind of made the point that Nathan Jones has been successful everywhere he's got, like you know like at Luton, and he said I want to be part of the journey with Nathan Jones and. I want to take my opportunity and, and so far he has done. Yeah. We're now going to hear from the Charleston boss ahead of Saturday's game against Portsmouth. And when we come back, we'll be talking about AFC Wimbledon. You touched on it a minute ago about this squad quite early on being too big and that you'll look to cut that moving forward. I wondered what's kind of an optimal sort of squad size roughly in terms of numbers? You have 22 or three players, three goalkeepers, 25, no more than that. They include young uh, elite development players that you've got, you've got through the through the through the ranks, but you have to have two 11s where they really go and compete against each other. So at any point you don't weaken the squad. At any point you add things to it, and 
there has to be real competition. Any more than that, really, and you are, you know, you're, 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 it's tough. Um, it's tough for the training and everything. And the big thing about it is what, what we have to do is, is add more balance as well because there was a lot of centre midfield players here um, uh, and, and that, you know, you can't keep everyone happy and, and things. So we have to add, one, add balance, two, add quality and three, streamline. Welcome back to part four of the South London Press Football Pod and uh, the focus turns to AFC Wimbledon. They lost 1-0 to Crawley Town on Tuesday night and you were there, um, Ed, to, to watch the game and, and sort of cover it for us. General thoughts on it? Um, well, they're, they're, you know, there's a bit of a worry, worry now and you kind of touched on it in your match report that maybe they might be beginning to show signs of faltering as the finishing line gets a little bit closer in sight. Yeah, disappointing loss. Uh, I think that's the most frustrated I've seen Jackson in, in a long time. Um, that and the 1-0 defeat against Sutton earlier in the season at home, um, which had sort of similar similar incons- similar consistencies with the game on Tuesday night. Wimbledon showed a lot of promise, created a lot of chances in the first half. Josh Kelly was causing Harry Ransom an abundance of problems. Um, you know, when you're looking at sort of a light, rep- light for light replacement for Ali Alhamadi, Kelly is very similar. Hasn't quite got off the mark yet. Well, he hasn't got off the mark yet. But in terms of running the channels and, and doing what he does, closing down defenders, pressing a lot, which was Ali Alhamadi's main strength for us. I think he was the, don't know what the stat was exactly off the top of my head, but I think he was the one the most um, aerial jewels, uh, not aerial jewels, won the most jewels high up the pitch, winning back possession for AFC Wimbledon in an attacking phase of play. Uh, Josh Kelly does the exact same thing. Um, been really impressed with him. Just needs that that one to go in, and then I think he'll start firing. But the game overall, um, Crawley capitalised on their one dominant spell in the game. It was a real sort of mix up at the back between Omar Bagel and and Alex Bass. I think Bass was coming to get it, and Bagel stuck out a foot, and it landed to to Orsi at the in the middle of the goal and he couldn't really miss um, a really, really disappointing defeat for AFC Wimbledon because after that 1-1 draw at home to to Morecambe on the weekend, they'd obviously had the great result against Barrow the last time out at Plough Lane. Disappointing result against Accrington Stanley as well, but not much in the game. Um, they needed to get back to winning ways. It seems like every time they're getting towards that that top seven spot, which is the, the, the last remaining playoff spot, really, when you're looking at it, the gap between six and seven is quite a bit so that's the spot they're fighting for and they're fighting for it with it goes all the way down to 18th 19th in the league table so it's a it's a really fascinating league when you're thinking about it because anyone can get into it if you put put it together a run of three wins in in league two at the moment you could find yourself within the playoff spots um so when Wimbledon are dropping points at home to Crawley who are also in the fight a team who they played off the pitch for parts earlier in the season, um, it, it's going to be really disappointing. And that's what led to, to fans booing at the end because the level of inconsistency that Wimbledon have shown in League Two has, has been pretty dramatic, really. They go on r- runs of of impressive wins, like they did last season. They get to January, like they did again this season. They sold Ibisal last season. And then they saw Ali Alhamadi this season. Ibisal was a little bit different. They had a release clause. It was triggered. Nothing could do about it. This time around, the, the offer was too good to turn down from Ipswich. And and they're going through a real sort of gelling period at the moment. The back four is a makeshift one. Lee Brown, who's done well, is is playing at centre-back alongside the experienced Alex Pierce. Those two are obviously in their mid-30s. And when you've got a pacey attacker running at them, it, it does strike a little bit of fear into you. But... 
it, it's a period where FC Wimbledon, because they've been out without Jake Reeves and Josh Neufel as well, um, they're going to have to get through it. And if they're lucky enough to still be within the, the playoff spots come the next few weeks, I think I think they'll be looking at giving it a real go, but they have to make sure that they're still within touching distance. Otherwise, they're going to get swallowed up by this massive chasing pack. After a sort of defeat, you're quite often, you know, there seems to be fans, I saw a few fans that were saying about the fact that, you know, Jacko signed a new two-year deal and uh, was the timing right? Should we have waited sort of further down the line to to make that call on what was happening managerially? Uh, I guess you're always going to probably get that after a defeat, but, uh, or some results don't go your way. What, what, what do you make of it? I mean, you know, when you look at it and people are kind of questioning, oh, was it the right time? What would you say? I think when you're looking at trying to get the likes of Omar Bagel and Armani Little to sign new deals, they're obviously entering the final few months of their one-year deals that they signed in, in the summer. They need to know who the manager is going to be if they want to commit their future. And they've obviously built up this great relationship with Johnny Jackson. He's getting the best out of both of them. I think Little and Bagel have really been the shining lights in, in the season so far. And I think when Jackson has had the tools at his disposal, as I mentioned with the sort of inconsistency, it feels like every time they start to put together this run or the team starts really clicking and they're playing some really nice football, which they do every week, they do play really nice football. They are one of the better teams to watch in League Two. There's no doubt about that. Something goes against them, whether it be injuries, a player sale, um, and then they put together this really poor run and it, and it makes things look a lot worse than they actually are. Um I think Jackson has a way of getting a tune out of the squad. It just at the moment, it's just not quite clicking for them in certain situations. Um, I mean, he's been quite open. They lost the best player in the league. Any team who had Ali Alhamidi is, is going to really struggle once you sell them. I do think Josh Kelly will score goals, but I I worry for for where Wimbledon's season might have been if they managed to keep hold of, of the squad. I know they were made a big statement saying we're not going to go into the second half of the season weaker after leaving January, but they, the brutal fact of it is they have, they've lost, they've lost the best player in the league. There's, there's, there's no way they could go into it just as strong. Obviously recruited Kofi Barmer, who's done very well for them. Um, Palace fans will be delighted to hear 23 sort of entering his, his good years of his career, got a lot of experience under his belt already been on some, the loan to Port Vale didn't quite work out for him, but the sort of feedback I got was that he maybe lost his confidence a little bit. So dropping down to League Two, where he's excelled, his long throw has been a real sort of useful tool for Wimbledon. And now he's pick up, picked up an unfortunate hamstring injury. So it feels like with Wimbledon, every time they go one step forward and get close into that top seven, they go two or three steps back and they've got to rebuild and go all over again. So it's a really crucial stage of the season. And I think fans are probably looking at it thinking these were the games that Jackson needed to be judged on to see whether they were still in and around it. But as we mentioned with our three clubs prior to it, there's no stability at the moment in football. So maybe having some stability is the best thing for a football club. And, and Wimbledon have their hands tied behind the back going into every season already because when you look at the accounts that were released the other day, they lose a million and a half before a ball's even kicked. So it's... Uh, it's it's a really tough period. It's a really tough sort of environment to be in. You've got the one hand, you've got this amazing stadium, and another hand, you're wanting to play in League One football. It's you know, it, it's sort of a devil's choice. Which one are you going for? So, um, it, they've done a lot of work to to really build this football club up, Jackson and Skiverton. Um, the training ground has been transformed. Up from what I heard, the meals, everything. It's it's all been sort of 
put together really nicely. When I went down there, I was really impressed with the sort of setup. So just have to hope that they can they can try and sneak their way back into it. And who doesn't want to celebrate their hundredth game in charge of Doncaster? Or in Doncaster, I should say. Yeah, it's, uh, I've never been on a night out in Doncaster. I can't imagine there's 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 much to to celebrate in Doncaster. I don't know. Love it. Love it. No, clip, it, like, it clip it and stick it out later on. That's brilliant. I don't, I don't know whether that's me being a southerner or what or what, or what the problem is, but yeah. It's, I'm not, I'm, not, not just, I'm not saying you're wrong. Uh, I mean, I don't know. I've never been out in Don Like many of these grounds that we go to, uh, I tend to just arrive, cover a game and go home. The option of a night out is never normally a luxury that we could probably get on work expenses to even stay up there, let alone uh, have a night out. But no, I think that's great, mate. You've, you've, you've basically slandered culture. Long part. That's a Colchester then. We've now got Colchester in there as well as a crap night out. But, um, Colchester's, yeah. Colchester's on next week's pod. I'll just pick a UK city and slide it. Yeah, right. Don't pass the city, but, yeah. no, no. I think it's it's definitely the way to definitely the way to go. Where is the best night out? Maybe people could say to us on the pod, where is the best? Uh, answer the question to us and send it to us on just on on X or Twitter, and just say to us where is the best place for a night out as an away as an away uh, game, but. I imagine yeah. it probably depends what you're looking for, what your requirements are for a night out. Um, mm. Anyway, we're that's it. I think we're done. Aren't yeah, we? that, I think that's it. Yeah, we've 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 taken it down a rabbit hole that, that nobody nobody needed to know about. So there, we'll, we'll wrap up episode 14 of the South London Press Football Pod. Lots to talk about this week, so a bit of a long one, and uh, obviously the audio in in between. So I hope you enjoyed it. We'll be back potentially next week see how the week stacks up hopefully no more managerial sackings or anything and uh, at least the transfer windows closed so we'll be quiet on that front but yeah speak soon